0: If you've if you got a Bible with you, go ahead and get it open to uh, 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 5. We're going to read from 1 Peter 5 in just a moment. If you're a guest with us, welcome. It's a joy to have you here. What, where we're at, kind of you're in a conversation that's already been in progress for about six weeks. And we're actually closing up our time studying through this, this letter, 1 Peter. And... Um, and, and so we have here at the top of your outline, if you just look at that, I'm going to remind us of something that we saw the very first week as we began this study. The aim of 1 Peter is the advancement of the gospel through quietly dignified and godly Christians who bear witness to a hope that outlasts the fading glories of this world. That's why we've talked about this series under the heading, Unstoppable. So I wanted to remind us of that overarching uh, emphasis and motif of First Peter before we read this last text in First Peter chapter 5. Our focus, I'll just say, our focus is going to be on the first 11 verses, but I'm going to read the whole thing for us as we begin. So follow along if you would, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 5. I exhort... The elders among you, as a fellow elder and witness to the sufferings of Christ, as well as one who shares in the glory about to be revealed. So there's hope already in verse 1. Shepherd God's flock among you, not overseeing out of compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not out of greed for money, but eagerly, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, here's hope again coming into the passage. When the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. In the same way, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. All of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another because God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. Here's hope again, this forward look. So that he may exalt you at the proper time. Casting your cares. This is how we humble ourselves. Casting all your cares on him because he cares about you. Be sober-minded. Be alert. Your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion, looking for anyone he can devour. Resist him firm in the faith, knowing the same kind of sufferings are being experienced by your fellow believers throughout the world. And here's hope again. The God of grace, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, establish, strengthen, and support you after you have suffered a little while. To him be glory forever. Amen verse 12 Through Silvanus a faithful brother as I consider him I have written to you briefly in order to encourage you and to testify that this is the true grace of God stand firm in it she who is in Babylon so that's kind of code language in scripture scripture in one sense is the tale of two cities of Jerusalem and Babylon. Babylon, the city of man, Jerusalem, the city of God. So he says, here we are in the city of man, but we belong to another city. He says, she who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you greetings, as does Mark, my son. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. What a wonderful letter this has been. Dr. Michael Green is um, an Oxford theologian. He's a Christian apologist for many years. But he also just loves sharing Jesus with people. And so he, he has a passion for this. And he's written a little bitty book, 150 pages, one of my favorite books on evangelism called Sharing Jesus with Friends and Family. Really practical. You don't get the impression that this is one of the premier academic theological scholars on the planet. He just, you just, he just sounds like a guy who wants to win people to Christ. And then he writes, so all the way across the spectrum from a 150-page practical book on evangelism to uh, almost 500-page book on evangelism in the early church, which is a comprehensive study of, of how the early church from the first century to the middle of the third century got the work done, shared the gospel, and passionately sent the message of the good news of Christ To the nations. And somewhere in that 500 page treatise is this sentence, which I love. With the scriptures and prayer as their main weapons, (laughs) backed up by their love, their burning zeal to share their faith with others, and get this the sheer quality of their living and dying. The early Christians set out to evangelize the world. Isn't that rich? Can, can that be us? Can that be the defining feature of the church of Brook Hills that we've got scripture and we've got prayer. We're going on our knees and we're asking God to do what he alone can do. And we're proclaiming his word, the truth that saves unashamedly to the world, and that's backed up by our love for one another. It's backed up by compelling lives and the sheer quality of our living and our dying as we take the light out to the nations. The only explanation for the compelling community of faith that you see in the first century in the pages of the New Testament, the only explanation for the missional energy and pulse of the early church is what Peter calls... A living hope. He says this church has hope that's pent up and it can't be stopped. It's just this, it's got to get out. It's as Jeremiah says in the Old Testament, it's like fire shut up in their bones. They have to get the word out because they have living hope. It's a hope that's alive. It's a hope that has to be shared. It's a hope that's wired up to the empty tomb. That's why Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1, you have a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead so they didn't live like it was home, like this was home, because it's not. That explains the life of the early church. They didn't stay silent about the gospel because they knew we have a hope that this world can't find outside of a personal relationship with Jesus. So out they went naturally, spontaneously, it was overflow. And what I hope we notice is that Every time Peter changes gears, there are three gears, if you will, in 1 Peter chapter 5. Every time he changes gears to talk about something else, he stops and says, that thing I just talked about, it'll only be motivated by hope. It'll only be motivated if you keep your eye up and out and you see what's coming after this life is over. If you live in light of eternity, you'll do what I was just talking about. Every time he changes gears, he talks about hope. So the first thing he begins with is this, the character of the elders, the character of the elders. So, why does Peter wrap up a letter like this with an exhortation to the elders? Just I mean, put everything in perspective. This church is feeling the heat of persecution. It's about to get hotter very soon. That's why he says, don't be surprised by the fiery trial when it comes. It's about to get worse. He's talking about a church and to a church that's in exile and feeling it all over the place, having shame heaped on them by the Roman society and culture around them. And now he's going to have a sidebar with the elders? You know, if you're a member of the congregations and you're reading up to this point, it's like, hey, don't don't go off in the corner. Keep talking. We all need this. All of us need this, don't have a sidebar with, with, with the elders, right? But here's, here's what comes through so clearly in Acts 20, in 1 Timothy 3, in Titus 1, in 1 Peter 5. What comes through so clearly is eldership matters for the health of the church. And notice the picture of these elders. There's a metaphor that's used for these elders. They're not, uh, they're not CEOs, they're not guys in power suits, they're shepherds. That's what they are, right? You see those words there. I exhort, verse one, "The elders among you is a fellow elder and witness to the sufferings of Christ." No, verse two, "Shepherd, God's flock among you." That is the main work that elders do is sheep work. It so says, "Shepherd the flock that is among you. they're with the flock. They're among the flock. The, if you're trying to look for a shepherd and you're walking around the countryside and you're trying to look for a shepherd, your best bet is find a flock and he's going to be there. Walk toward the flock and you'll find the shepherd. That's what he's saying, shepherd the flock that's among you. They're not off in the green room somewhere. They're not just hanging with the elders. They're shepherds. They're with sheep. This, this makes sense, right? Um, Peter, the one who writes this, you remember his restoration that took place at the end of the Gospel of John? So he's denied Christ three times. He said he never would. He lopped off a guy's ear. Not one of his finer moments. And Jesus Jesus kind of, I think, rolls his eyes, picks up, puts the ear back on. You know, like, it's not time for this. It's not time to pick up our swords. That's not what's happening here. I'm going to the cross, Peter. It was a kingdom misfire. And so then he he heals and restores. and, And Peter then sees Jesus arrested and then cowardice takes over, and there's a failure of courage, and he sees Jesus as a stone's throw away, and everything's going south, and in that moment, somebody asks him, warming their hands by a fire, and says, you're, you're with him, aren't you? You're one of his followers, and he says, no, never met the man, no idea, and she says, no, 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 I have seen you, he says, no, she says, I've seen you, he says, no, and he uses some profanity just to throw it in and sound more credible, that I don't run with this guy, I'm going to prove it, Right? So threefold denial, and then Jesus goes to the cross and he dies, and then he rises again three days later, and he's looking for who? He's looking for Peter, and he goes to the beach and he sees Peter throwing the net, and he calls him over, and Peter comes, and they have this conversation. Jesus has a word with Peter, and what does he do? He says, "Peter, I've got a question for you. Do you love me?" And Peter says, "Lord, you you know I love you." And what does Jesus say to Peter 35 years before he writes this letter? He says, you love me? Feed my sheep. Then he says, again, do you love me? Lord, you know I love you. Tend my lambs. Do you love me? He asked him a third time, and Peter's heart was sorrowful because he realized it was three for three. It was for the three denials, there were these three affirmations. And Peter says, you know, Lord, you know. And Jesus says, feed My sheep, And now all these years later, Peter's about to die for the Savior within two or three years. And Peter says, fellow elders, come in here close. Feed his sheep. They're his sheep. They're not our sheep. Feed God's flock. Shepherd God's flock that is among you. And then notice in verse 2, he starts to list some things. He's saying, not this way, but this way. Not this way, but this way. Not this way, but this way. And the first in that series is... Shepherd God's flock, not overseeing. So just stop there. There is a role of leadership and oversight and authority, spiritual authority, not overseeing out of compulsion, but willingly as God would have you. So there's the first trait. Incidentally, the first trait of an elder is a significant reason for why as a church, so let's talk very practically, why as a church one year we have one new elder to present And then another year, like in 2013, we had two elders to present. And then last year, we had nine elders to present. So, what's the deal here? The deal is this men who are nominated and maybe even meet the biblical qualifications don't have to become elders. They don't have to say yes. When they're invited forward into the process and the final stage of the elder selection process, they don't have to say yes. Why? Because we have it on the authority of God's word, it's not supposed to be by compulsion. Not twisting their arms into serving the church in this way. There should be an internal fire, an internal willingness, a motivation that's from within, not from without. So that's it's a good thing, right? We want elders to count the cost. We want them to deliberate. We want them to prayerfully consider. We want them to evaluate their schedules if there's time and there's energy to do this well and do this faithfully in this season of their lives. Why? Because scripture tells us that an elder should exercise oversight willingly, I love that phrase, as God would have you. So Peter says don't do it from compulsion, and then he goes on to say, what's the next one? Not from greed, not, not the love of money, not, not for a desire for financial benefit. And then he goes on to say, not, not just out of greed, don't be motivated by compulsion, don't be motivated by greed, don't be motivated by a power trip, don't just want the badge so you can lord it over people. He says, not, that's his words, not lording it over those entrusted to you. You, you see stories even today that show that this isn't uh, just an ancient set of instructions that was needed back then. This is every bit as relevant today. Stories that demonstrate the need for this kind of instruction right here in the 21st century, even in the news just this year. Very prominent pastor, and if allegations prove true, who has monopolized church funds for his own interests to the tune of millions and millions of dollars, has purportedly bullied and spiritually abused People in his church, it's, and it's all over the local airwaves of the radio in his city with attached recordings of his voice saying deeply unseemly things, unbecoming comments from some who is, someone who is called to shepherd the body of Christ, and the questions that are being asked literally all over the city, but also by a very shaken congregation is, Why didn't the elders do something? How has this been allowed to persist? And the answer seems to be that though the the elders could barely live with this guy, it was concluded that the church couldn't survive without him because he was such a dynamic force, such a dynamic communicator and preacher. He had such influence and such impressive leadership gifts. And then they were forced to fire him, this year, and now the church is $42 million in debt. We still need 1 Peter 5. The church of Jesus Christ doesn't need more gunslinger preachers or more leadership gurus. The church of Jesus Christ, if it would be healthy, needs more shepherds who are passionate about the sheep who love the church, who are humbly submitted to God's word, who equip the saints for the work of ministry and the mission of the gospel. That's the call. I believe that the principle that's located here in this passage really can be applied to every area of ministry in the church. What's, what's the principle? It's this God doesn't want any of us serving out of compulsion or guilt. That's not a win for the kingdom. <laughs> You motivated by guilt and condemnation and serving because someone twisted your arm. Right now, at this very moment, all morning long, there are hundreds of volunteers who have been serving. They helped you park your car. They greeted you on your way in. They're training your children and teaching them God's word. They're taking care of babies in the next hall. They're small group leaders. They're worship team members. They're audiovisual people. They're ushers, right? Hundreds of volunteers. And I hope every single one of them is doing what they're doing because they love God and they love you. Because somebody twisted their arm and they have to do this. Not, Peter says, by compulsion, but willingly as God would have you. And notice how Peter connects this to hope. Look where Peter points them for fresh motivation. Verse four, and when the chief shepherd appears, here's what's coming, be faithful. You will receive the unfading crown of glory. Now we know from other parts of scripture that those crowns aren't just given to those who occupy the office of elder in local churches. In other words, in our context, there's more than 38 crowns when Jesus comes back or we, we end our race. For example, James chapter 1, verse 12 says, Blessed is the one who endures trials, because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. So this crown, it has to do with the commendation of God to his faithful people for a life lived in the Savior's service. That's what this commendation is. What, what are the words that we most want to hear when we break through the finish line at the end of our lives? Well done, good and faithful servant. That's what we want to hear, right? And we know that no act of love, no act of service done in Christ's name is overlooked. What did Jesus say to his disciples? He said, you clothe the naked, I'm watching. You visit the prisoner, it's like you've come to visit me. I am all over that moment, I'm watching intently, nothing is missed, no act of service, invisible though it may be to the rest of us. Every cup of cold water given in Christ's name is seen by Him. Every gesture of gospel fragrant welcome and hospitality will be called out in public by God. It's an awesome thing. His commendation will bellow through the heavens. Gospel hope affects the way leaders lead. It affects the spirit in which all ministry is done in the church. Next, gospel hope affects the culture of the congregation. The culture of the congregation. So he moves from exhortation to the elders about servant leadership to verse 5 where he says, look at verse 5. In the same way, see, changing gears, but it's related. In the same way, you who are younger, we'll come back to that, be subject to the elders. All of you, now we've got the whole church, elders, everybody, all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. So you see in the first four verses, the elders are under the authority of the chief shepherd, Elders are very much under authority. Chief shepherd is over the elders. And then he says, and the younger are to be subject, his words, subject to the elders. And by younger, Peter just means the rest of the church. In other words, Peter isn't suggesting that the elders have particular responsibility for those under a certain age in the church. That wouldn't square with the rest of what we read in the New Testament. It wouldn't even square with the rest of what we read in this text In this very text, a couple of verses before this, Peter talks about you're exercising oversight over the flock. That is the whole church. The elders have responsibility for the whole congregation. And then he says in verse 5, I love this, all of you, all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. And here again, this, this image of clothing is being called upon by the apostle Peter. Earlier, we saw this. Matter of fact, last Sunday in our study, Chris led us. We saw this image of clothing where Peter said to Christian women, don't be known by your outward style. Be known by your inward substance. Be known, be, let there be an inner beauty that radiates out, that is noticeable. Let it be in your words that have weight, your actions that are beautiful and compelling and wise. He's saying, be known for that. Let that be the thing that catches people's eyes, inward character. And Peter draws that same analogy up again here. Clothe yourselves with humility. Humility. If we're going to get dressed up in a way that makes us stand out, Peter says, put this on. Put on humility. Humility looks good on the church. It's looked good on the church for 2,000 years. It's a compelling thing for the church to wear humility. It's a missionally optimistic thing. It advances. It helps us. It helps the gospel ring true and credible when his people are humble. Again, Peter is connecting all of this to the mission of gospel advancement through the church. That's why if there's a central statement in the entire letter of 1 Peter, it's right there in chapter 2. We looked at it two weeks ago where he says, you proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous Light, once you were not a people, now you're God's people. You hadn't received mercy, now you have received mercy. And now he goes on to say, so live before the Gentiles so that they set their slander megaphone down and they join you on the day that Jesus returns. It's mission-driven, the whole letter. Peter wants this church to shine in the world, not just to shine in-house or shine in the church. Peter presents, and we talked about this in week one, Peter presents to the church another way to win the world, not with angry spirits and truth grenades, militant speech, but but by outrejoicing our critics, by enduring hardship with poise, with dignity, by suffering well, by the sheer quality of our living and dying, right? By telling good news by removing hindrances that are barriers to people's faith in Jesus. Think about this question as a church. What gospel opportunities might open up if we were more and more marked by humility? What impact would that have on the world as it looks in at the church if we were more and more marked by humility? What if it wasn't the bling of our religiosity? What if, it, what if it wasn't kind of our, our label throwing anger and defensiveness? What if the gleam that caught the eye of a watching world was the humility of the church? What if they saw non-hostile responses to hostility? We didn't fight fire with fire, we didn't play it their way. What if, what if we were the classy people at the table of discourse? What if we were the adult in the room in a world of corrosive anger? What if that was the new normal? Readiness to absorb offenses. If it's going to create gospel opportunity, I'll eat this one. I'll inhale this one. If it's going to open up doors for us to winsomely share the hope we have with you, I'll just absorb that. What if that was the new normal for the church of Jesus Christ? Verse 5. Clothe yourselves. Here's our new uniform, Hills. Clothe yourselves in humility. Why? Here's another reason. Because God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. My oldest son's pastor in Louisville, up there when he's in college, uh, wrote a book many years ago, really helpful book, and it contained a memorable sentence that I'll never forget. He said this. The Bible makes clear that pride is our greatest enemy and humility is our greatest friend. Pride is a a destructive force in the world that has to be avoided at all costs, right? Pride pride will make us self-reliant. Pride will keep us from depending on power that's outside of us, the power of God's spirit. Pride will keep us from casting our cares upon him because we got this, right? I can do this on my own. Pride will keep us from submitting to the word of God no matter what it says next. Pride will destroy the unity that we have as brothers and sisters in the church of Jesus Christ. Pride will keep us from evangelizing the world. Why? Because we crave the applause of the world. And we fear men more than we fear God. Pride does that. The scariest truth in the Bible about pride is right here God opposes the proud. What does that mean? It means God is against the proud. Brooke Hills, do we want God against us? Do we want to be on the business end of God's justice in the world because in our pride, we stand against him. I think that in order for us to feel the weight of God opposes the proud, we have to know God. We have to know the God who opposes the proud is a holy, awesome, mind-blowing God. And this is where In a way, we're not set up to succeed in our culture because the church in our culture is hopped up on the candy of man-centered, God-is-your-life-coach theology. And it's not going to get us good places because the seeds of that message, once they're sown, are not going to reap a harvest of endurance if and when persecution comes. We need to see the real God. We need to shake. We need to tremble in his presence Church, we impoverish ourselves if we only gravitate toward Bible passages that make us feel warm fuzzies about God. You know what the church needs? You know what we need? We need to dive into Genesis chapter 6 and we need to watch the flood waters rise all over the earth as God brings judgment against sin. We need to dive in and reflect deeply on Exodus chapter 15 and hear the Israelites singing, Miriam's got her tambourine out, and they're singing the praises of a God of justice at the shore of the Red Sea while the corpses of Pharaoh's army are bobbing in the water behind them. We need to reckon with the words of Jesus Christ himself when he preached about hell and the judgment that's coming for those who have pushed God aside. We need to interact with Hebrews when it says, It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And then the fear of the real God, the one who is really there, not the one who is as we like him to be, but the one who is there, we reckon with him as he is or we perish. That one, the fear of that God who doesn't tolerate evil, will then fill us with wonder as we realize we have a mediator. That holy God sent His one and only Son to reconcile us to Him, to give sinful people a way to find our way back to Him, Jesus Christ, who reconciles sinful people to a holy God through His substitutionary death on the cross and His glorious resurrection. That's the central story of the Bible. That's what all the prophets were waiting for. In the fullness of time, he came. Do you know that message? Is that message familiar to you? Is it not only familiar, is it compelling to you that grace, grace comes from a holy God to unholy sinners like me through faith in the work of Jesus Christ? Have have you... Heard that in such a way as to believe it. And I mean believe it from the heart. I mean believe it in such a way that he is Lord and Savior and treasure. He gets the keys to your life. You throw yourself into his arms. You say, tell me where to go. I'm yours forever. I don't know where you all are in your spiritual journey this morning. But here's the thing. This is always a relevant admonishment for us to hear. No matter where you are, this is a relevant admonishment. Let's put away our pride. Let's turn from self-rule. If it's the first time or if it's the 500th time, let's turn from self-rule. It's called a life of repentance. Let's turn to Christ in faith this morning. And what do I get? If I turn from self-rule and put my trust in Jesus, what do I get? Peter's answer is, so glad you asked. He says, you get grace. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. You don't have to jump through hoops. You don't have to become morally stainless. You you humbly broken fall. (laughs) And he in the gospel catches us. And that grace then comes arm in arm with hope. Here's hope again. Future hope, humble yourselves, what does it say? That he may exalt you at the proper time. Here again he's saying the motivation for everything I just said is look up, there's something coming, live in light of what's coming, it's certainly coming. Exaltation is coming, not just more humiliation into eternity. Exaltation, the one that matters, is coming. So we see how gospel hope, number one, affects leadership and ministry in the church. Two, we see how gospel hope creates a culture of humility in the church. And then we see how gospel hope, how when hope comes to church, it creates, third, the courage of perseverance. The courage of perseverance. Look at verse eight. Be sober minded, be alert. Your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion, looking for anyone he can devour. Resist him, firm in the faith, knowing that the same kind of sufferings are being experienced by your fellow believers throughout the world. Christian friend, we have an enemy who wants to devour us. Jesus said, he's here, and I'll tell you what he's here to do, to steal and kill and destroy, and he's here all day, every day, and he never tires, that's his business. He steals and he kills and he destroys. I'm convinced, as I look at this text, that the days that I don't earnestly pray for help, for grace, for the power of the Spirit, and abiding in God's word, the days that I don't do that, I am forgetting there is evil in this world that is too strong for me. I can't take on that prowling lion in my own strength. I don't have what it takes against him. There's an enemy that wants my soul. There's an enemy that wants to wreck Christ's witness in my life, in my marriage, in my family, in my kids, in this church. The same thing is true for you. There's an enemy that wants your trials, your current suffering to lead you to curse God. What does God say? Be alert. Wake up. That's what God is saying. Wake up. Up, look around, your enemy's coming for you. Resist him, firm in the faith. And then we're reminded, I love what he says next, resist him firm in the faith. And he says, you're not alone, you've got brothers all over the world. What does that do? I think it it feels to me like Peter is saying, they're pressing on, you must press on. We press on together. We, all together, all around the world, we look to Christ. We resist this enemy firm in the faith. We fight. We battle. And here comes hope a third time in our passage. Imagine how encouraging these words. He's just told them resist and fight. And then he tells them what? Verse 10, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, establish, strengthen, and support. What four better verbs could they have wanted than for God himself to do that stuff after you've suffered a little while? And then note this, verse 11, to him be dominion forever. Someone stronger than the prowling lion Luther said in his battle hymn of the Reformation, one little word shall fell him. At the end of John Bunyan's great allegory, The Pilgrim's Progress, one of the believers named Mr. Valiant for Truth is, is his name, and he comes to the River Jordan. The River Jordan signifies death. On the other side of the River Jordan is the Celestial City. But you have to go down into the river, and you have to go underneath the river, and then you that, that represents death, and then you come up on the other side, and the celestial city is there waiting for you. And there, at the edge of the River Jordan, Mr. Valiant for Truth calls his friends, fellow believers. He calls them over, and this is so moving to me. It's been moving for years, but I've heard friends speak this way from the edge of the River Jordan. I've heard them speak this way, so I can't read it the same Here's what Mr. Valiant for Truth said. Then said he, I am going to my father's, and though with great difficulty I have got here, yet now I do not regret all of the trouble I have experienced to arrive where I am. My sword I give to him that shall succeed me in my pilgrimage, and my courage and skill, to him that can get it. My marks and scars I carry with me, to be a witness for me, that I have fought his battles, who will now be my rewarder. And when the day that he must go hence was come, many accompanied him to the riverside, into which as he went, he said, death, where is thy sting? And as he went down deeper, he said, grave, where is thy victory? And so he passed over, and all the trumpets sounded for him on the other side. The Church of Jesus Christ has been dishonored and is being dishonored all over the world. The Apostle Paul said, we are the scum of the earth, the refuse of all things. That's what we're thought of here in this world, this exile that we live in. He said, you want to know how the message is going and how it's being received? The Jews think it's blasphemy. It's a stumbling block. Everybody else thinks it's foolishness. The only people who think it's God's power are the ones who are being saved. Everybody else is mocking us. But God's Word tells us that today's dishonor from the world won't last very long. The disdain for Christianity in our culture the laughter of the kids at school because you don't love what they love, you love what God loves. This world's dishonor will be drowned out. This is the hope that the Christian looks toward. This enables us and motivates us to march to the end because what's coming is at Christ's return or when you finish your course, whichever comes first, heaven will erupt with honor toward those who have embraced shame for the sake of of his name. It will be a raucous ovation and applause from the one in the universe who matters the most. Don't lose your hope. A day is coming when everything, there will be this great reversal. Jesus said it this way, the last will be first and the first will be last just just over the horizon you read your new testament just over the horizon all those who faithfully follow jesus and who are suffering now will shine like the sun one scholar he was contrasting three of the great apostles and he said this paul is the apostle of faith john is the apostle of love but peter is the apostle of hope. And you pick that up all over this letter. There is hope from the very beginning to the very end. We have a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith. There at the beginning and here at the end when he says God himself will restore you and support you. Hope is a big deal, y'all. I, I pray and I want, I want hope to come to church, the Church of Brook Hills, every Sunday. I, I want hope to lift burdens off of you every single Sunday. Why? Because that's what makes this life and our mission sustainable. If you have unshakable hope, you're going to be unstoppable. If you have a hope that's tied, wired up to the empty tomb of Jesus Christ, you're going to be unstoppable. If you're grounded in a living hope, you're not going to fear this world. you got a higher fear. You fear the Lord. You're going to live for his glory, not lesser glories. You're going to hitch up your hope to things that last, not things that are fading. You're going to boldly proclaim the gospel. And with the scriptures and prayer as our main weapons, Backed up by our love and our burning zeal to share our faith with others and the sheer quality of our living and dying, the Church of Brook Hills will set out to reach Birmingham and the ends of the earth for the glory of Jesus. That's the dream, right? Isn't that our ambition? Our passage grounds our hope in two things the total care of God, verse 7. And the total dominion of God. Verse 11, He cares for us, He loves us, He's sovereign over all. Brook Hills, with promises like these, what can stop us?